0: Hello everyone, welcome to Film Festival Radio Show, hope you're having a good Saturday and your whole weekend is going to be even better. Well, let's get to it. We have one guest, normally, you know, sometimes we have two, three, sometimes four guests, but for this show it is so special. To me, I love this man's film. Uh, Our featured guest is Anthony Maria, and he's a filmmaker, director, and he is a native of Las Vegas. Now you know that's quite unusual because there's so many people here who have moved from other countries, or other states and cities, including myself. So just being a native of Las Vegas, it was such a pleasure to chat with him. Uh, but we're talking about business. He is releasing his debut film on September 22nd. It's titled "J.C. Bring." Cutting to the Truth, and it will be released on most of the major streaming platforms, again, on September 22, and that includes Apple TV, Amazon, and others. We'll get the rest of uh, those streaming platforms from him when we bring him on. Now, let me tell you about this film. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the life and legacy of 1960s Hollywood trendsetter and celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, who is also the uncle of our featured guest, Anthony De Maria. The film follows uh, Jay Sebring's career as he was a cultural icon and his, oh my God, his untimely murder, though, at the hands of the notorious Charles Manson family. He was one of the victims, unfortunately. But Jay was also, not only a successful business businessman, he was also the fiancé of actress Sharon Tate, who was also killed by the Manson family as well. Now, this film is sort of a portrait into Jay brings life as a successful businessman entrepreneur who created a billion-dollar men's hair and fashion industry, and really just kind of defined the iconic Hollywood style uh, back in that era for all of these A-list celebrities. Now, who were some of his clients? How about this list? Frank Sinatra and the rest of the Rat Pack. Elvis Presley, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Marlon Brando, the, uh, Bobby Darin, Sam Cooke, just so many others. It was like a who's who's, who's list of uh, just these superstar entertainment legends and they were all jc brings client uh clients i should say from that era and again that's what the film is basically about it is again directed by his uh, jc brings nephew anthony DiMaria, maria and it features interviews in the film with quentin tarantino quincy jones dennis hopper nancy sinatra roberts wagner Paul Anka, Andy Williams, and Fidel Sassoon. I understand this movie took a while to make, and it is so worth it. So if you are a fan of uh, pop culture from that era, I'm a fan of pop culture from all the way back from the 20s. So this type of film was right down my street and right up my alley. So let's bring on Las Vegas native and film director Anthony Maria to give us more insight about his new film, J. Sebring, Cutting to the Edge. everyone. Welcome to uh, more of Film Festival Radio Show. With me, Janice Malone, we're just, you know, like what we do on Saturdays, we talk to you, you listen to us, you give us feedback, and it's, you know, it's good. It's really good. Uh, And so that brings me to our guest. Uh, I have been just waiting patiently to chat with him. He's a filmmaker. He's a Las Vegas native, and having been new to Las Vegas myself, it's not a lot of native Las Vegas people that I meet, but I have one right here on the line with me. And we're talking about filmmaker Anthony De Maria. Anthony, welcome to Film Festival Radio Show, and thank you for calling in.
1: Oh, Janice, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Okay, let's get right to it here. You have a new film. It's a documentary film titled J Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, that will be released on September 22nd, uh, streaming platforms that include Apple TV and Amazon, among others. Fascinating topic, fascinating film. You are the nephew of 60s Hollywood trendsetter, uh, he's your uncle, Jay Bring, and so tell everyone. For those of us who are a little bit young, tell everyone what a vital role that your uncle had in pop culture from that era, and who he was.
1: Well, uh, Jay Sebring, you know, he was he was born in Detroit, Michigan, and after uh, four years in the Navy, uh, he uh, he decided he wanted to move to Hollywood. He always he grew up with a uh, an interest and fascination with the film industry in Hollywood. Uh, and you know, he would draw sketches of actors like Charlie Chaplin, W.C. Fields, etc. So when he was in the Navy, he started to develop his own technique of hair cu- uh, cutting and styling because he didn't like the Navy haircut and personal expression was very important to him. So he moved to Los Angeles at 22 with the plans of cultivating this concept of men's hair designing, as he called it, or styling, as it's known today. And, uh, he moved there in Los Angeles to, in 1955 with his ideas, his dreams and a sleeping bag. And he went to cosmetology school and this was an approach that was, uh, usually, uh, specific for women. And after five years of studying and, and cultivating his ideas, he finally opened his shop in 1959 and, uh, he, he did get a huge break uh, after struggling for about a year with Vic Moon and it's what's interesting especially with these Las Vegas ties is Vic Damone was a crooner that would perform at the Sands and Jack and Trotter, the head of inter- entertainment at the Sands, saw this transformative look, and he said what, where'd you get that? And so he said, this, this man uh, in West Hollywood, J.C. bring. so Jack flew him to the Sands this is 1960 1959, late 1959 and ultimately cut Jack's hair in the entire Rat Pack. That includes Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, uh, uh, Peter Lawford, with the exception of Dean Martin, and that was his big break. So yeah, in a nutshell, pre-Sebring, men went to barbers, and you had literally had one cut off a barber chart char- uh, slapped onto your head. But after Sebring, Men could have a custom cut that was specific to the, their bone structure of their face, their skull, the, the hair pattern, the, the growth pattern. And he, he really uh, was attuned to expressing each an individual client to accentuate, use the hair to frame the face to accentuate the attractive features of the man or client and diminish the unattractive uh, features. And so this was really revolutionary and groundbreaking. And I think that it was very pivotal for Jay to launch his concepts and and methods and and revolutionary ideas in Hollywood, because then he could literally shape and define uh, almost every recording and film uh, artist in Hollywood throughout the 60s. And that was... What he he literally is responsible for the iconic looks, whether it be the Rat Pack, Spartacus, you know, Kirk Douglas's haircut, or the Jim Morrison cut, Steve McQueen. And so that's what he did. He created men's hair styling, or as he called it, men's hair design, because men were very uncomfortable at that time to think that they were going to have their hair styled or even shampooed or blown dry or conditioned. These were things that just didn't exist for men.
0: Did he also uh, do the hair for Marlon Brando and Elvis?
1: Oh, yeah, he, he definitely did. He, he, uh, he cut Marlon Brando's hair uh, I, from 60 throughout 69. Uh, he was not his exclusive hair designer, but um, Marlon Brando requested Jay cut his hair on several of the films. And then uh, a funny story about Elvis Presley, uh, Elvis actually had his hair cut by Jay. And uh, Elvis, I guess... I, I don't think they clicked too well because maybe their their personalities were. Uh, I don't think that Elvis was used to somebody having a personality. And when I say that, I don't mean in a grandiose or, or pretentious way. But Jay was, he 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 knew who he was and what his importance was and what he was doing. And I, as the story goes, that you know Elvis was telling Jay how to cut his hair and he said, No, no, let me do my thing. And uh, he cut a cowlick and it sprung up and Elvis jumped up and he says. That's what I was talking about, and Jay said I'm not done. And by the time he got done with Elvis's cut, it really did change uh, Elvis's look. If you look at the famous uh, concert of Elvis in 1968, where he's performing on a stage in all like black leather, that's the Sebring cut. Oh. And it's it's interesting that you know Elvis really wanted Jay to be his personal stylist, but Jay, you know, he knew what he was doing. Uh, with regard to his shops and really kind of spreading the word throughout the world with his method in hygiene care that he needed to devote, that he, he, he was doing his thing. But ultimately, a couple of his stylists did become uh, Elvis's personal uh, hairstylist, Larry Geller and Sal Orofiche. But Larry Geller was with Elvis, uh, I think, essentially from 1963 or so all the way through to until Elvis passed away.
0: And so here is, you know, Jay created this, it sounds like a billion dollar, near nearly a billion dollars, not uh, empire here. How many salons, are, I should say salon shops did he end up having?
1: Well, um, it, 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 I, I, that's a really good point you bring that up. And, and I think that people don't realize, but what Jay created in the industry and in the art form, but specifically men's hair designing and styling, but also men's hair Care products and, and grooming he uh, uh as of 2018 those that jay the industry that jay created generated 20 billion dollars on the entire planet wow. for that Great. year of 2018 uh and so he his shops to answer your question he started in on fairfax avenue in west hollywood then he expanded uh, to two shops in albuquerque new mexico he had uh, Places where he cut, in, that were his places in uh, Palm Springs, Las Vegas, and then he expanded within. Uh, uh, I would say within about seven, eight months uh, in 1969 before he was he was killed.
0: Okay, and then and, Oh,
1: and I'd be okay. remiss if I didn't mention. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I apologize, Janice, but um, he also had uh, hundreds of Sebring certified salons throughout the country, and what that means is that each of the cutters, whether they be barbers or cos- cosmetologists they had to take a course, uh, a very extensive course, to learn all the Sebring techniques and different cuts. And, uh, and once they were certified, that they could actually say, this is a Sebring salon. Because when he started to take off, when Jay started to take off, people were walking into barber shops based on what they were seeing in, in the newspapers and in the Hollywood magazines. I want a Sebring cut, but no one knew what the heck that was.
0: Wow, so he had sort of had his own, like, well, back then, brand. That was his brand.
1: Com- completely, and in 1966, he literally launched the, f- the first of its kind, a complete organic, non-alkaline, non-acidic hair care product in his own name for men. It was, it was called Seeping International. And, the, and uh, again, men didn't condition their hair. Men didn't shampoo their hair, but once every week or two weeks. And he had hair tonics. He had spray, in which he totally changed it so that the hair would grow as it, as it flowed from the, from the scalp. And he used sometimes uh, hairspray if needed, as opposed to like polymers and glues and petroleum jellies that were slapping the hair down. And actually very detrimental to the health of the hair because that buildup of uh, synthetic glues and, and, and jellies would literally cover the scalp and cause hair loss
0: yes, and mother. so
1: jay also had treatments whether it be a a mildest acid or different you know electro electrodes that he would try to open those pores back up
0: wow you're right that for that era that those decades for men no that's not
1: happening <laughs> no, <laughs> I, not
0: goodness, at all. I think the only thing that i mean i was i remember my parents and Friends and television, they're talking about about what Brill Cream was probably as far as you could go. Oh
1: yeah. my gosh, No, totally, totally, Grill <laughs> yeah. Cream and what was it? No more of that greasy kid stuff.
0: That's it. That's it. Well, okay, here Jay is is just got this fabulous success, international success, and he his fiance is Sharon Tate. So tell us yes. about that that whole. Relationship. we Of course, we want them to go see the movie again. Is J C. ring cutting to the truth? It opens September 22nd. Streaming platforms: Apple, Amazon, all of the top streaming platforms. So, okay, take us, Anthony, um, his relationship with Sharon Tate. I, I,
1: I'd be happy to. And oh, may, may I add on video on demand, so that if people have Spectrum or Cox or Directv, they can order it there on video on demand on okay. those platforms as well. Okay. Cool. Um, um, with, with, uh, regarding Sharon, Jay and Sharon had met, uh, in very early 1964. And, uh, there's, there's several stories as to how they met. Uh, one story is that they met at the whiskey, uh, whiskey, a go-go on Sunset Boulevard at a concert in which Johnny Rivers was performing. And, uh, Johnny was one of Jay's clients. Jay was actually very instrumental in kind of shaping his image as well, and then there was a story uh, of a Hollywood p- uh, publicist named Joe Hyams, who was assigned to do a piece on Sharon Tate. And uh, as it goes, is described by Joe himself that, uh, that when Jay heard about this, he had uh, uh, another stylist, the women's stylist, Jean Chico, had uh, mentioned Sharon to Jay because he had done her hair and Jay was aware of Sharon and, and was interested in her. So, it just so happened that uh, Joe and Jay spoke, and by the towards the end of the the interview, here comes Jay. Hey, Joe, what are you doing? And, and, and Joe, said, hey, Jay, hey, I'm I'm interviewing Sharon Tate here, and in, in a very, I guess, uh, <laughs> organic way, uh, as, as you could say, Jay was invited to the table, and they had a conversation. And uh, as it goes in, in uh, Joe's memoirs. He said that, uh, you know, he called, and and he left, Joe left, and then Jay and Sharon were remaining talking at the table. And uh, he called Jay the next morning to see how things went, and Sharon answered the phone. So he says, I I gather it went well. They were engaged for uh, between a year and a half and two years, and uh, they were very, very close, uh, platonically as well. And they remained close, uh, as well on, on, you know, various levels, but certainly platonically, even after, uh, Sharon went uh, to Europe to do a film with Roman Polanski and that's where she met him. And ulti- ultimately, uh, Jay and Sharon separated and, uh, Sharon and Roman were married.
0: And so Jay was scheduled to come here to Las Vegas, um, August 8th, 1969 and pick up the story from there on, on what happened.
1: It's, it's interesting. You say that because very few people don't know that. And sadly many people with regard to the night of Friday night, August 8th, 1969, there's so many people who have written in Hollywood and even friends, uh, uh, the inner circle friends of, of Jane Sharon have uh, alleged to put in their books that, that they were supposed to be there that night. Well, the sad irony is that Jay wasn't supposed to be there that night. He was supposed to be in Las Vegas at Caesar's Palace at Anthony Newley's opening, and that's uh, confirmed by several sources. And in fact, my father cuts hair as well, and he's cut several of the you know actors and recording stars. And Anthony Newley, my father cut his hair for a while. And Anthony Newley also told uh, my father directly that he didn't understand how Jay was killed the next morning because he was supposed to be in Vegas at his concert uh so jay was at the house on cielo drive wh- in which sharon resided uh, in the afternoon he uh, joined sharon and her friends voytek and abigail folger who were residing in the guest bedroom of the home and so uh the four of them they, it was you know people think that maybe they went to dinner at the el coyote on beverly and in, in, in hollywood or they didn't, but that we never really confirmed that, but they spent the evening there. And uh, after about 12, between 12 and 12.30, is when they were set upon by these people, you know, known as so-called Manson family. And, uh, and the rest it. we know.
0: Yeah, the rest. So, so tragic. Um, over the years, like I said, I, of course, was barely walking back then but over the years when i became an entertainment journalist i've seen so many interviews video clips and such of you know charles manson uh, you know every time he would come up for parole uh and and people it would what fascinates me so much anthony is that there were people out there women who wanted to justify on why he should be released back out in public. What, what did that do to your family? What kind of reaction does your family have about these kinds of things?
1: I'm glad you mentioned the parole hearings because it's very important to get the word out and, and really bring up public awareness and that justice is at hand with regard to these endless parole hearings. Our family has gone for maybe 20 years to the parole hearings uh, and uh, approaching a couple dozen of them. We never went to the Manson parole hearings because he just there was no way he was getting out. He had way too many uh, infractions. And I don't think he wanted to get out. I don't think he re- I think he realized that he wouldn't do well in, in general public for a myriad of reasons. Uh, but to your point and how the fascination and support of the people for the people who committed these crimes, uh, it's it's a it's it's a it's a sad repercussion of certain types of people who gravitate towards, uh, you know, killers or the salacious or tabloid uh, narratives. But at one of the hearings, and this is, it's important because it's, it's like the film that we're doing. This is about Jay Sebring. This is not about any of the people who committed these crimes. Now there's a significant chapter and we get into the details of where, uh, you know, for instance, what did Jay do in the last moments of his life, which no one knows? And we get into that. And that's how these murders are, relate, are are relevant. It's because they're relevant to Jay, not that Jay is relevant as one of the four others, as in Sharon Tate and four others, because he was killed in a notorious murder spree. But that's the narrative as understood so far. But at these parole hearings, in, in that same perspective, our involvement in these parole hearings is not out of anger, hatred, or rage towards the people who committed these crimes. It's out of love to speak for people who can't speak for themselves, for Jay, for his friends, and for all the victims. And there are other family members that go to these parole hearings and do the same. And collectively, the Manson family killed, conspired, tormented, uh, splashed messages and blood on the walls and and taunted our families and and spit on the memory of the victims and, and literally taunted society at large during those trials as they performed for cameras. But our involvement is for the victims. And so there's nothing we can really do about the fascination of, of the, what really seems to be a complete cottage industry of Manson memorabilia, Manson fascination. And to anyone who would question that, I would, I would point them to the Internet to look up things you can buy Manson-related or Manson family-related. And whether they be T-shirts, mugs, baby bibs, anything. You can buy, you can buy a Manson autograph for a, a considerable amount of money. But in the end, that has been one of the things that has really kind of propelled me uh, in, in, in this film, is that I always wanted to know the truth about my uncle. And as I learned more, the more compelled I realized Jay's story is if we look at the substance of his, of his, his 35 years, in what he did culturally and historically to elevate, whether it be men's, the men's hairstyling and grooming industry, whether it was defining the times in, of ultimate male Hollywood style, and even in the last moments of his life, his story and his legacy is much larger than any of these people who committed these horrible crimes. on that. Uh, pernicious and malignant is the impact it has on society. Yeah. Because if we are to look at this and say, oh, wow, they, these things are actually exciting and these, these killers, what they've, they've been treated in, in, in most pop sh- uh, culture circles as serial killer rock stars. And hopefully when people see more of uh, a, a J story with the human dimension in detail, that it demands, that it deserves and they see the murders treated and not treated exposed with sober clarity, void of any kind of titillating or sensational narrative. That's a punch back. And it's always been shocking to me that it's taken over 51 years that such insight would ever be uh, uh, produced. And as a fact, in fact, one of my investors, when I spoke with him, he started to see the footage that we were doing about eight years ago and he was astonished. He says, I understand Anthony, that, you know, Jay's your uncle and and, and your mother's brother, but what I'm seeing here, no one's ever done this, this, this man's story. And I said, no one, no one. And he said, that's unbelievable. And that was just think a 20 minute cut. So, Uh, And I I, I do think that I'd like to address that uh, when I heard that Quentin Tarantino was doing a movie uh, that would include uh, characters of of my uncle and of Sharon, and also it was what I was hearing that it would deal with the murders and also that the Manson people would be uh, the characters in the film, I was very concerned, very concerned, because Quentin Tarantino is a very influential, very talented uh, uh, artist, and... I've never seen an evidence or an example of the murders, the victims, the killers, anything treated with just as they were just a, a, a simple journalistic look. Uh, so I was concerned that maybe this might be something that was, would be exploited or, or, you know, I, I didn't know, but I also know enough is enough. And I reached out to him through several, several different avenues. And uh, eventually, uh, I, uh, Shannon McIntosh is his producer and, and, film partner, they called and we had several meetings and I found them to be very uh, considerate and uh, generous with their regard for the victims, our families and and the portrayals of them. And that would be an exception. As I said earlier, uh, that would be an exception because he didn't, uh, he certainly treated Jay and Sharon, but people not like victim prototypes. And that was a first. And that was uh, was very encouraging. And for people to really get to know who Jay Sebring was, because Quentin even said, he says, you know, I'm not claiming to be telling Jay or Sharon's story. I'm infusing them in my own story, which is what he did. Um, and But to know Jay in his, his you know, very complex and pregnant uh, relevance, he he has to be, the center focus of an entire film about him. And in Quentin's film, Jay was more of a a peripheral character in a subplot.
0: And I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of my questions. Uh, The movie, of course, we're talking about is Tarantino's Once Upon a Time uh, in Hollywood, which I I did see. I'm a huge Tarantino fan, like so many of us out here. Uh, But I want to go back to this for a minute, over the, the years, has your family maintained any kind of communications at all with the families of the other victims?
1: We have, actually. Uh, when we first, uh, when, like I said, when we first became involved, and the reason we became involved in the parole hearings is because my mother saw in the news that that it was an actual possibility that some of these people would be released from prison, paroled. And my parents and grandparents went to Los Angeles after the original death sentences of the killers were uh, revoked. LAPD and the LADA's office met with my, my family, my parents and grandparents in Los Angeles. And they were, they, they were told that there was no way that any of these people would be released, that it was just a technicality. And so my parents trusted that and my grandparents trusted that. Well, you know, the, the the landscape of things has changed since then uh, drastically, and so my mom asked me to reach out to the DA's office to determine if parole was, in fact, a possibility. And I called Stephen K's office, and I mentioned who I was, you know, I'm Anthony De Maria, Jay Sebring's nephew, and well, before that, uh, his the person who answered the phone, secretary, I don't know who, but uh, she said, well, What's this? I asked if Steve K. was available and if I could leave a message. She goes, oh, sure, just leave a message and, you know, what, what's your name? And I, and I told her what it was regarding and who I was. She says, you know what, Anthony, hang on for a second. Literally within five seconds, Anthony, yes, Steve K. Hi, Steve. Now, he was the original co-prosecutor, and he presided and prosecuted all the Manson trials, and he also presided over hundreds of the parole hearings. So – we spoke, and he said, yes, in fact, we're in for a fight. And I said, our family, my mother wants to be involved in this, and she wants to stand up for her, her brother and all the victims. So that's when we became involved in the parole hearings, and we, uh, uh, we've we met a number of the different uh, victims' family members. Uh, we see consistently Deborah Tate, Sharon's sister, uh, Lou Smaldino, who is a nephew of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, and uh, John DeSantis as well. I, I speak with him. He's also a nephew of the LaBiancas. And I've spoken with Janet Parent, the sister uh, of Stephen Parent. Uh, so we've gotten to know a number of the family members. And uh, it's good to know that we're, we have each other's backs. And, you know, as I said earlier, that group of people, and, and I certainly don't refer to them as a hippie cult. They were a crime organization, a very very violent uh, dangerous crime organization. Uh, they conspired, targeted, killed, did what they did collectively. And collectively, our families uh, are bound to 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 speak out for our loved ones and to fight for justice.
0: Well, I got a couple of last questions here, Anthony. Um, since so much of jay 's life, a big portion of his life and his business uh, involved being coming in and out of Las Vegas uh, when the movie premieres on the twenty second or and afterwards are there any type of special activities or events it may be online or offline that will be taking place in the future or what pertaining to your film
1: you know i'm not aware of that right now you know we're just kind of doing the uh, the, the various circuits and, and you know getting raising some awareness of, of jay's life story. So uh, we, we have some, you know, some of the socials up, the Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook pages as well. Okay. So people can definitely get involved and, and you know, uh, you know just post or what have you.
0: Okay. And what is the website and, and those social media handles there?
1: Oh, shoot. Uh, you know what? Can I get back to you on that? Because oh, yeah, sure. uh, I don't know the name. I, I know that there's a, a J.C. been cutting to the truth mm-hmm. on uh, Facebook and also Instagram, what I can do, there's a Twitter page and an Instagram page. Uh, I can get those details. Okay. Uh, either, we can either pick up with that or maybe I can provide it to you, and maybe you can handle that. I'm not sure.
0: Absolutely. I can get that from your publicist. And, um, gosh, what a fascinating film. I'm a huge, huge fan of pop culture, obviously, from what I'm doing. But, uh your uncle was such such a style icon, and I think it's very important that people who are, who are really into pop culture like me know about who he was and the role of his work and talents that added to earlier in, in, these, uh, in this century of the work that he did. It, what has happened, all of his businesses and uh, everything, is everything now shut down, or is there anyone that's still carrying on any parts of his work or what?
1: Well, it's interesting because you know my family they they, uh, they are in the, the hair uh, industry, the uh, hairstyling industry, and they all uh, implement uh, sebring techniques and how they cut. And I am in contact with Joe Tornueva, who's Jay's protege, and, and Joe worked with uh, Jay at the shop on Fairfax from 1962 to '66. And he, too, uh, continues to, like our family, to carry the torch, if you will, of the Sebring method and cutting. Uh, After the murders, my grandparents were in Michigan, and my parents, as I had mentioned, were in Las Vegas. And before we, you know, go, I'd like to also talk about how the film itself, we have uh, pretty big uh, Las Vegas ties in, uh, but I can get back to that in a second. Um, But uh, I'm sorry, so... So what happened was the shops, after several months, there was essentially a group of people who were managing the shops, and uh, they started defaulting on payments, uh, maybe six months or so into it. And my grandparents couldn't subsidize the the, uh, the shops, and so my parents offered to move to Los Angeles to oversee Jay's business and enterprise. And my grandparents were so traumatized and devastated by what had happened in in California that my grandmother in particular asked that we stay in Las Vegas. And, of course, my parents honored her wishes, and ultimately the family sold uh, the entire enterprise, including the the product line. The product line, the the shops, I would say, uh, folded within a year or a year and a half after sale. And then uh, the product line existed for decades, but now seems to be dissolved. I don't think it's being uh, manufactured anymore. And I've uh, reached out to them a couple of times, and I haven't heard any response. And do you mind if I go back to the Las Vegas connection in terms of – Well, it's interesting because, you know, as I said, that Jay, he had deep ties in history to Vegas between the Sands and, you know, the Rat Pack, Paul Anka, Vic Damone, Sinatra, Sammy Davis – But he also, uh, and that lasted from 1960 to 69, but when my parents moved here in 65, he would drive out and visit my parents. I was born in 66, and on uh, several of the visits, he would bring Sharon with him, and uh, on one of those visits, my mom was pregnant with me, and it's a great story about Sharon, but she literally, uh, my mother, you know, told me and, and shared in the documentary that Sharon, before they went back to l a she bought a nice kind of beautiful light poncho, so that you know as a pregnant woman in in this kind of heat that it would you know it was very classy and very comfortable and it was a very sweet gesture and uh my entire family has always said how extra- i mean there's the obvious Sharon was extraordinarily beautiful. But also, uh, my parents have said over and over, and, and my grandparents have shared with me how extraordinarily kind and sweet and, and sensitive she was as well but so he so Jay was constantly coming to Las Vegas, and if my grandparents or his parents, I should say, uh, were visiting from Detroit, Las Vegas, oftentimes he would drive out or uh, and drive them to Los Angeles, or they would they would go they would fly to Los Angeles, and then they'd stop off in Las Vegas. So that, that was Jay's ties to uh, Las Vegas. And in, in, with our film, with regard to our film, uh, I'm born and raised in Las Vegas. I went to Bishop Gorman High School, and I have one of my uh, uh, dear family friends and uh, film partners, he was also our executive producer, Chad Lane, also is born and raised in Las Vegas and is a, a, a Gorman grad and it's it's an extraordinary uh opportunity to have somebody that not only has the the detail and the substance to bring so much to a film but also to have that deep family friend connection and i'm just grateful to to chad lane and you know for for that las vegas connection because what a friend and what an asset and you know, sometimes in making films, and especially if they're independently produced, you got to, you know, scratch and claw your way through it. And and we, I began researching, cognitively researching this film back in 98 when I was living in New York City. And we began filming uh, in 2008, so it's 12 years in the making. And, you know, we had some very tough, challenging times. And like I said, when you have a film partner and friend and I include Johnny Bishop in this. Uh, he was a producer, editor. You really need—it's so important—to have an extraordinary story. And we were fortunate because we have really significant, impressive people telling Jay's story. And, but it's also really important that you have a crew and partners and filmmakers. It's—it's it's great if they're talented, but in this case, over such a long period of time, to have the same. Dedication and loyalty in this, and I'm so blessed in, 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 in knowing that I, I have them in my, you know I have some, uh, various, just mentioned Chad and you know and, and and Johnny.
0: I think it's very important also that uh, a family member, an actual family member of Jay's, has presented this film. It it gives uh, even so much authenticity to the film because you're a family member, you loved your uncle, obviously, and that just, you know, to have, yeah, I'm sure over the years there have been many filmmakers who have done films based on this whole uh, Manson family um, tragedy, but to have someone directly related to uh, Jay like this is is very important, and I'm so glad that you were able to put it together. I'm a big fan of the film already, (laughs) Oh, thank you for doing well, that. Well, I,
1: re- I, I really appreciate that, and I think that it is interesting. It's as much, you know, what you're saying is it means a lot, and uh, it's, it's touching. But as, as a, a family member, I also wanted to, I, I wanted to know the truth about about everything about Jay, everything about my uncle, and I also know that, you know, I certainly want to tell his story in the comprehend uh, comprehensive. Uh, Areas of his life. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and 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 it's it's important to be candid. And and certainly that is something that uh, we were very attuned to in telling this story because you want to we want to look at all aspects yeah. of the person. And um and that 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 is really, it's I appreciate you saying that. And that I I think it's interesting too that. Over the years, people have, you know, said to me, or I've read in the paper over and over how, you know, that this Jay's life is such a sad one. And actually a producer in Australia, I forget what show it was they were doing, but she wanted to do an interview. And I politely declined because I said, you're going to be doing the murder show. You're not going to be doing, you know, the, the real story. And that is something that is so important in this is that we're, we're really telling real story. Uh, We're setting the record straight, I think, and and I'm looking forward to people seeing and determining for for themselves. But she said to me, she says, you know, Anthony, it really is, I I was looking over Jay's story, and it really is quite a sad one. And I said to her, you know, based on what you've read and what's on the Internet and anything you've seen, in a way, I can kind of understand what you what you just said. I said, but knowing what Jay's life was, the content, the substance of his 35 years. uh, And I said, and I include the very horrific last moments of his life in this, because he did something that people need to know about in that living room on Cielo drive. And no one has reported that. No one knows it. I had to scour through, pages of testimony to learn but you know she said he's really and I said no if we look at the substance of his life his is actually a very inspiring glorious life Steve McQueen in Jay's eulogy said that most most men fantasize about their dreams Jay lived his dream and I think in that context it's so relevant to all of us and I know that my grandparents and parents, they had instilled in my sisters and I, in our family, for all our family, that Jay would never want us to suffer any more than what is natural. He would want us to live like he did, with the passion and the zeal that he did. Wow. And I think that's a profound legacy. And that's I think true. that this, will, this film looks a little bit more, a lot more into those aspects and that substance.
0: And finally, I'm really happy to hear you share how much your family uh, really did love Sharon Tate. It it seems like they were very anxious about having her as a part of your family once that she and Jacob, they could have gotten married. That's that's good.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And you know, I, 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 it's, it's an amazing process because from the moment I was told I could never see him again, I had to see him again. I had I it was it was not necessarily an articulated semantic uh, thought in my head, but it was an, a need. And and then as I got older, I needed to know the truth when I started reading things about that seemed so different to me, J.C. bring the man who lived and a J.C. bring after death. And I had to know the truth. And in the process that we've gone, I've learned so much, whether it be Dennis Hopper or Nancy Sinatra or Quincy Jones when I see these people who have literally inspired me in, in, uh, in, in their field and my field, uh, and see the love and respect that they had for Jay Sebring. And it was an extraordinary process. And in that I saw how much love that the Tate family had for Jay. I know that, uh, you know, Paul Tate, Colonel Paul Tate and, and, uh, Doris or Gwen Tate, you know, they love Jay. And they did, in fact, see him as a son. And so the fondness and the respect uh, and love that you described that our family shared for Sharon uh, certainly was mutually shared for Jay from the Tate family.
0: Wonderful to hear. What a great tribute that you have uh, created this amazing film in honor of your uncle, I think I just commend you so much for doing so. And even though it took eight years, I, I know it's worth it. It's more than worth it because uh, it's, it's authentic, it's genuine, it's accurate, and it was done uh, out of love, most
1: importantly. Well, well, thank you, Janice, and that's a huge compliment, and and I, 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 I really appreciate hearing that coming from you. And it, it was actually 12 years. Oh, my
0: goodness, 12 okay.
1: <laughs> Yeah, but no, and I'm laughing because I, I know that my that Johnny Bishop, my editor and uh, you know and and okay. producer, like there was always these motions. Hey, uh, what do you think of another uh, interview with? And he was like Anthony. <laughs> so, so that's why when you you know we talked about the, the number of years it took. It's uh, it is quite uh, 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 it, it it was a gargantuan effort and quite a roller coaster. And oh, wow. and in a way, I'm glad I didn't know before I started this process, because it would, would have been frightening and daunting, but nothing could, could have kept me from completing this story.
0: Oh, no. Well, this is definitely my last question. We're going to land this airplane. Uh, <laughs> okay. I know this is your first film. What a, what a great start. So have you thought about or have you started on your second film or second project or what?
1: Well, that's that's nice that you ask. Actually, I um, you see, I st- I went to USC and I studied in the acting conservatory, and uh, I was fortunate to to you know do quite a bit of theater in New York and and work on some great shows uh, in L.A. and in New York, mm-hmm. and uh, among one of the people that I had met uh, because she was a playwright, her name's Regina Carrado. And she's, we've worked together on Deadwood and show, a show called, another HBO show, David Milch film called, or TV show called John from Cincinnati. And we've worked and collaborated extensively for over 30 years. And she, uh, she's, you know, she's a writer, producer, in film, certainly uh, theater, and also television. But she just, uh, she, she wrapped up, uh, she worked on a, she just wrote a, a screenplay with Terrence Winter uh, called, uh, the godmother. And uh, I, I think Jennifer Lopez is slated to play Griselda Blanca. And Griselda Blanca was uh, kind of like the, the El Chapo of Colombia back in, in, I think it was the 70s. So Regina and I have been talking quite a bit and actually uh, working on a story and, and screenplay of an untitled film. Uh, and, and so that's that's what we're working on next. I am going to see Jay's fil- uh, film and release uh, to, through its end and then we can then regina and i can focus on that project which i always look forward to working with her so you know the, it, is an, it it's an ongoing process especially anything having to do with storytelling because that is my background and that's what i studied and that's what i did all those years in new york and la and whether it's you know in front of the camera or behind the camera that is something when you devote so much of your life to doing it's it's kind of in your blood
0: Oh, yes, for sure. So with this um, project, would you be doing both in front of and behind the camera, or what?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, this is, I'm actually really enjoying uh, telling stories. I always have, actually. You can ask okay. any of my friends. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of this particular project, it it would be more behind, more focused on, on uh, the story and maybe even screenplay. Uh, she's such a talented writer and you know, so, but that I think that's what it will be. There is an independent film coming out that we'll be filming once this COVID, uh, you know, uh, thing it kind of get, gets resolved and everything's settled. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of what's been going on. But I've been fortunate to work with some really amazing people like Woody Allen, David Milch, um, just extraordinary.
0: Oh, it sounds like it. And now this film. Well, Anthony, I I have just enjoyed every syllable, every word, everything that we have talked about. This is this, this genre of film and genre of entertainment is just so, as they say, it, up my alley, down my street, and uh, just thank you so much for I, not only doing the film but just giving me such a wonderful conversation here. Uh, again, the film is J. Sebring, Cutting to the Truth, premiering. On streaming platforms and video on demand, September twenty second, and I uh, will get that email. Not email, website um, information. Somebody just sent me an email. It distracted me, but um, get the website information and we'll put it out there and just just get the word out. And if you, people who are really big fans and love pop culture, this is a must see film. You gotta
1: see it. You just got to. Well, thank you, Janice, and I have to say the pleasure was all mine, and uh, I really appreciate you.
0: Okay. Well, I look forward, hopefully, to talking to you your next project. I'm assuming there will be some time next year. So please call us, and we'd love to have you to come back on.
1: That would be fantastic.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of the week.
1: You as well. Thank you, Janice. All, okay. the, all my best.
0: Okay, then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We- All right. Thank you so much, Anthony, for giving us some insight on the behind-the-scenes making of this very important documentary uh, about his uncle, the late Jay Sebring. And as I said, if you are a fan of pop culture, especially uh, entertainment culture, this is a film you really do need to see. It's just fascinating. A lot of information that, uh, as we we were talking there have been countless numbers of books and films and docs about uh, the Manson murders, uh, but this film focuses specifically on J.C. Brink and a lot of other information that has not been covered by uh, authors and such about the whole tragic murders. So, again, please check the film out. Again, it opens on September 22 on the uh, major streaming television platforms from Apple TV to Amazon, um, all of them. Uh, Okay, so that's going to do it for this edition of Film Festival Radio Show. Make sure you join us next week. One of our guests will be the one and only NBC game show host, Jane Lynch. And Jane will be joining us to talk about the reboot of The Weakest Link game show of which she will be hosting and she's also the executive producer of and it will be making its premiere in by the end of this month so we'll bring Jane Lynch on next week hopefully you guys will have a great rest of the weekend and even better week we'll see you next time on Film Festival Radio take care bye bye
1: Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio
0: you. <laughs>